Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 7, please. I, uh, I guess I'm having uh, a little bit of divided mind up here on a couple of things, so let me just say this. I always feel like at Pastor Appreciation Time that it's most important that I relate to you how much I appreciate you allowing me to be your pastor. And uh, this year we have added uh, gratefulness in that, and that Brian's here, and uh, both of us as your pastors are grateful for the opportunity to serve you and to serve with you, and uh, I'm anxious to see what the Lord will be doing with us as the years go by. So, thank you, especially to all you kids. How many of you are first graders in here? Raise your hand, first graders. The first graders came and visited me at my office today during Sunday school and brought me handwritten uh, and they made cards and said thank you and that kind of stuff and uh, a little goodie bag and uh, it was awesome. So thank you first graders, that was great. You made my day with that. All right, Matthew chapter 7. I, uh, as I've told you before, I love to go backpacking and that's been part of the uh, uh, one of the great pleasures of my adult life, started doing that right as I was getting out of high school. And I've had some really great backpacking trips, and I've had some really bad ones. I'll give you either extreme here. I'll start with the bad one. A friend of mine, when we first moved down to deep south Texas, found out that I liked to go backpacking. He also did, and so he said, let's take a trip. Uh, the problem with living down at Edinburgh, which is near Brownsville, for those of you who don't know, uh, is it is... A tremendous distance to go anywhere for any reason. Uh, if you want to go to a population center, it's a long ways to drive. And especially if you want to go backpacking, it requires mountains, or at least the way I like to do it. And so it was, it was very difficult. You almost had to fly if you were going to make a backpacking trip from down there. And uh, so I made that comment to him, and he said, no. He said, there's a place in the hill country of Texas that we can go, and he says, it's a great place to go backpacking. Some of you know the place. I know I mentioned it in the early service, and several came up to me afterwards. Very familiar with the place I'm talking about. It's called Lost Maples State Recreation Area. Now, whatever else it is, if that's your favorite place in the world, more power to you. I'm happy with my worst backpacking experience ever. First of all, there are no mountains there, all right? I know people from the flat country consider a hill to be a mountain. It was not a mountain. But worse than that, we get out and I start moving with him. We get our pack and everything on. And we start heading to, to our first campsite, which as it turns out was not, I don't know, 45 minutes or so walk. And it was flat and it was the trail was as wide as one of these sections of chairs and uh, that in itself, I could have made, you know, I kept thinking there's something better as we go. But we made camp there because that was one of the only water sources around. And as night progressed, it got up close to midnight and all of a sudden we heard people walking on the trail. Well, here's the problem with Lost Maples. Everybody knows where it is, including college students. And so what happened was these college students started coming and building a tent site right next to ours, from here to the back of the, of the room, from where we were. Now remember, it's the middle of the night, and it's about five of them, and they make multiple trips. We were so close to the parking lot, they carry in generators and refrigerators and a sound system. And so all night long, we heard, well, let me just put it this way, they weren't having church over there, okay? 
So, that's the bad experience. Let me take you to the better experience, the best that I've had in backpacking. Took a group of people to the Pecos Wilderness outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I'd been there a number of different times, usually on one particular trail or some of the offshoots of that trail. But on this particular trip, we decided we would go a different route. And so we picked a trail that none of us had gone on. All right? Big mistake. Well, it seemed that way at least. The first half a mile or so was flat because it walked, the path was right alongside of a river that was running through there. But once we crossed that river, it turned, the trail did. And by the way, this trail was not hardly the width of one of these chairs that you're sitting in. And as soon as we crossed that river, that trail went up. And for the next eight hours, we went up. Now, among other things, part of the process there was they had trees that had fallen across the trail. And there were some of the trees like we have around here that you, go, you don't just go over them. Uh, you have to take your pack off and you have to hand it over. Somebody climbs up and we had to help people over. Or we would try to dig underneath some of them because it was just work for eight hours going up. We made camp. The next day we got up and another four hours up until finally we got to our destination, which was a high mountain lake there. This is the kind of lake that you see commercials about that you just wonder how in the world could this be so pretty and not us not get to go on a regular basis. We got to the lake. Some people kind of hung around the lake. Some of the people with us decided to do a little bit of fishing up there, but Myself, my cousin, and two teenagers decided we wanted to go further because the trail went past the lake on into the trees. And so we went up, and finally, before it was all said and done, we found ourselves sitting on a ledge about 500 feet below the peak or the ridge line that was there on a sheer cliff. And as we climbed up, it was work, but we wanted to get to the top, couldn't make it to the top, so we found ourselves on this ledge. And when we turned around, what we saw was a view that was incredible. We had climbed high enough to be over the trees that we had just hiked through. On the other side of the trees, we could see the lake. And then beyond the lake, we could see the valley. We were at the highest point of that whole ridge line, and we could just look out across this picturesque setting. And it was real worship there. That takes me to Matthew chapter 7. Two extremes in my backpacking experience. What I want to do today is ask you, how do you measure success in your life? And it's really kind of one of those things that we really need to put some thought to. And actually what we need to do is let Jesus weigh in on the decision for us. As we come to this, Jesus is now moving to close the Sermon on the Mount. And as all good preachers do, in his closing, he offers an invitation. Now, his invitation is going to uh, extend on a couple of different statements, a couple of different sermons that we have. This is the first one. He comes to this one and he makes us make a choice. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 read this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it or enter by it, are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, as we come to this, I want want to, first of all, kind of try to correct uh, a traditional misinterpretation here. 
I need to be careful because I don't necessarily disagree with the interpretation that we've missed. Uh, but I don't think it's placed in the right position here. Here's what I mean by that. When we come to this passage, typically the, the focus is on the gate and the way as it relates to getting to heaven or to hell. And I'm not disagreeing with that. As a matter of fact, we'll find in other places. I'll look at a couple of them in just a moment. But we want to pull this down and we just kind of want to make this categorical statement that what Jesus is doing here is making an evangelistic appeal. Go to the narrow gate that leads you into heaven and that's the picture. And the wide gate, the many there are that find it is the one that takes you into hell and that... Well, it's a good truth, biblically, but it's misplaced on this text. You see, we equate life, as Jesus uses it here, with heaven. Practically, that plays out for us this way. On the broad way, there are all kinds of people, and the end of that broad way is hell. That's the typical interpretation. There's this narrow way. And at the end of the narrow way is a gate. That's heaven's gates. And then once you get there, you get to go into heaven. That's life as we typically interpret this. Let me, let me see if I can paint this word picture for you. Um, last Earlier this week, uh, I should back it up even further. Within the next two weeks, Teresa and I will marry off our second son. All right? Lauren is the baby of our family, so our oldest son is already married. By the way, his wife's about to have a baby. Could be right now, so if I get a phone call, I'm just going to drop my Bible. Somebody pick it up and finish preaching, and I'm going to go get the new grandbaby. Um, But our second son is due to get married a week from this coming Friday. And so we've been in full press wedding preparation mode at our house for a while now. Uh, craft work to do centerpieces. I, I've, I've done so much craft with... No, actually, I haven't done any of them. She's done all the work there. Uh, my job is to hand my wallet over every morning and say, here you go, whatever you need, just get it. We've been in wedding prepar- preparation mode for a long time. Well, we're getting short on time, and Teresa still hadn't found what she was going to wear to the wedding. And we had so much other stuff going on, that was just one of those other details. Well, it suddenly became a priority, and so we couldn't find it locally. And so I said to her, look, Tuesday when you get off work, we'll just head over towards the Conroe Woodlands area, Houston area, and we'll shop till we find you something. Which took us on 105, um, what's the name of that town over there just before you get to Conroe? Cut and Shoot. Now, you tell me that's not a town named in Texas. <laughs> Cut and shoot. That sounds like the neighborhood I grew up in. But you know what the problem with cut and shoot is? It's not their name. It's that two-lane road that they try to service 4 million cars a day with. So we leave out of here. We get over to cut and shoot at about 5.15 in the afternoon. You know, among other things, I had a professor who used to say, guys, just don't be dumb. That was dumb, all right, to go at that time on that particular road. So we're going over there, and cars are stacked up. The one in the front's doing 20 miles an hour, which makes all the rest of the line of us angry because you can't get around them and all that. So we fi- finally, we get to Interstate 45 at Conroe, and we turn south to go to the woodlands, and all of a sudden, 
what was a two-lane road now becomes this freeway that's expansive. I don't even know how many lanes there are, four or five going each direction, I suppose. Now, I want you to let that image sink in on this passage, okay? Because that kind of captures what Jesus is saying as it relates to the word picture. Now, if we take that highway and there's four or five lanes across and every once in a while you have the opportunity for an exit and you can take that exit if you want, sooner or later, is the way Jesus lays it out here, sooner or later that destination on that Broadway takes you to destruction or at least that's the way we have interpreted sooner or later. The reality here is that Jesus is saying to us to choose to be on that broad path no matter when you get to the destination, which is destruction. It's destruction all along the way. The narrow path, on the other hand, according to what he's saying, is life. And it's not just the destination that when you get to heaven out there, then suddenly you get life. Matter of fact, we find all through Scripture, all through the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and especially from Jesus' own lips, that He is life. You know what John 10, 10 says? It's been a long time since I quoted that in here. It's a life verse for me. I hope it can be for you. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. You're familiar with that? Now, let me ask you this question. Is that an end-of-life reality or a present-life reality for people who don't know Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. It's both. To die without Jesus Christ means that the enemy has stealed checking, stolen and killed and destroyed and ultimately wins in that person's life. But the stealing and the killing and the destroying is a present reality for them as well. You see what I'm saying with that? So the broad way, Jesus says, there's many on it. And it leads to destruction, but that doesn't mean that at the end is where the destruction happens. It does, but it's in the process as well. Okay? Now, that's the picture I want you to get as we work our way through this. This is about kingdom living, this passage is. Remember Matthew 5.20? What Jesus said there? That's the thesis for the whole Sermon on the Mount. For unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees... Put a pause there and a comment. In other words, if that redundant, traditional, lifeless, legalistic approach to religion is all you have, then by no means will you enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said. This whole sermon is not about evangelism. It's about discipleship. He's saying to his disciples, this is what kingdom living looks like. You remember what he said about that? First of all, right after or right in that same passage where we get the thesis, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In other words, you are here to make a difference. And then he turns and he starts giving these things, these antitheses, one after another. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say, if you have anger in your heart towards another, you are guilty of murder, more or less. Go back and read it. 
And then he doesn't stop there. He takes it another step. He talks about don't commit adultery. And then if you have lust and you just work your way through those things and you'll find Jesus is saying, I'm upping the bar for you. It's not about what you do and don't do legalistically. It's about the heart. So now when we get to this point, he's concluding this sermon on discipleship. I love what Brian did for us today with the reference to Bonhoeffer and his uh, cost of discipleship book and the things that come with that and then the song that helped. By the way, I thought Melissa was going to... Did you see her smoking? Her strings were smoking over there. She was hitting that rhythm so hard. That reminder for us that we come to die when we come to be children of God through Jesus Christ. But you see, the modern church has a problem with that. Because we don't like the negative connotation of what it means to come and die. We like to be able to come and say, okay, Jesus, I'll set the terms on what it means to be your follower. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no, you won't. So now as he turns towards home, he puts us in this position to make a decision. Ultimately, this is not about heaven and hell that he's talking about here. Ultimately, this is about choosing wisely how we will live. I want you to look at the sequence of what he says here. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. The first word, verse 13, is a command. It's written forcefully. It's written as a way of saying, make a choice right now. Well, it makes sense. Jesus has been teaching them. He's been taking them through this sermon. Every sermon ultimately leaves us with a choice to make. By the way, that's how I started in the prayer time today. Did you come today anticipating making a choice for Jesus Christ? Most of us didn't. Most of us just said, well, we're going to go to church today. Hope somebody gets saved. Well, what about you today? What is your choice as it relates to Jesus and his role in your life today? He says, enter. And then we get, okay, so let me look at the rest of that and let me ask you this question. What is the sequence? Is it the gate and then the way or the way that leads to a gate? What do you see? This is audience participation time. I'll ask a question. You respond, what's first, the gate or the way? The gate. You see, if we take it the way we traditionally have taken it, the gate's on the end. We're on this narrow way because we're going to heaven and we're going to try to get there. And at the end is the gate. And if we give the right answer, then we get in. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The sequence is gate first. Now, let me take you to a couple of things. Make sure we're all on the same page. John chapter 10, verse 10, we talked about. Now, here's another one. In John chapter 14, you can go and look at that. Uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his exit. In several places in John, Jesus gives himself different names. John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want to come back to that in just a second. Another place in John, Jesus refers himself to himself as the gate. That's in John 10, by the way. So... We're not wrong in saying that, you know, our traditional interpretation here. It's just that we're missing the context of what Jesus is saying here. He is the only way. He is the gate. And if you don't go through the narrow gate, which is him, let me, let me just stop there for a second. 
You know, that in itself is an offensive truth in this day and age. You go out, we went to the mall, I told you that, the Woodlands Mall. We got there right about the time the crazies got there. That's not unusual. Every time I go to the mall, it doesn't matter what mall it is. I've been in in malls in Istanbul and malls in Israel and malls in America. The crazies are always at the mall. Maybe it's because I'm there. They, you know, I don't know. But I love to watch people. It's a cheap entertainment. You can see all kinds of interesting stuff. If I took the average person at the mall on Tuesday night in the woodlands and sat down with them and said to them, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Most of them would be offended by that statement. You know how I know that to be true? Several ways. First of all, this passage reminds us of that. I'll come back to some of those, that wording in just a second. But also, I've lived long enough and I've had discussions like that long enough. And I've been a student of our times long enough to realize that we live in a time that people call the postmodern era. And among other things, the postmodern era has a group of people. It is the, one of the defining things about this time. And that is that people say truth is relative. In other words, your truth is fine for you. But it's not truth to me. Now, that's crazy. But that's the time we live in. Let's just put that right down on the bottom shelf, okay? We have lots of law enforcement people in our church. The postmodern approach to truth says that 55, oh, that's old time now, 70 mile per hour speed limit is fine for you, but it doesn't apply to me. Oh, whoops, I just opened the door in church, didn't I? Postmodernism says truth is relative. If it works for you, knock yourself out, but don't enforce your truth on me. So when we come forward and we say, as Jesus says, he alone is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's offensive to a postmodern person. Jesus is right on target with his time. He's right on target with our time. He's right on target all the time. So what is he saying here? The sequence reminds us. The gate is what you go through and then that puts you in the way, along the way, on the road, so to speak. Now, having said all of that, let me start pulling it together for you. As we come to this passage, Jesus is the way. All of those wide highways that I just got through talking about, If you find yourself on one of those and you agree with everything that everybody around you has to say, you might be on the wrong road. Let's put it this way. I don't know if you've voted yet or not, but you need to vote. Okay? I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just telling you that you need to vote. One of the things that I've heard regularly through this election cycle, and this is not the first time that I've heard it, but one of the things that I've heard regularly is just how unchristian America has become. Let me tell you something. That should not surprise us. Look at what Jesus says in this passage. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In other words, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to be in the minority. Everybody's not going to agree with the value system that we bring to life. Now, that ought to set us up to be ready for some backlash. Jesus writes it in that way, or it's written in the way he says it here. For the way is hard. That word hard there means oppressive. It means to be pressed and to be put under pressure. It reminds me of that passage over in the Beatitudes, the last one. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. It's the same word. It's the same idea. So this narrow way... It's not where everybody else is. This narrow way is painful. And it has a cost that's attached to it for us. It's offensive then when we stand in front of this society and lay out for them, this is the way of the Lord. They don't want to hear that. And by the way, churches are full of people these days who may have made a decision for Christ but they've just kind of defaulted into the way of the world and call it normal Christianity. I don't read this passage that way. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking us to a point and he says, make a decision. And he lets us know up front that few people are going to find the right way, are going to make the right choice. Now, one of the things that I think is important here, we see that Jesus is talking about this persecution and few there are that find it's a hard way. That's not really the best marketing tool that he could have come up with for us. Normally, we don't market the Christian life that way. What we heard Brian say during the music service, uh, you rarely heard said even in some sermons. And that is that it's going to cost you something. Jesus says, come and die. Give yourself up. And let me be in charge of your life. We don't talk like that much, even in church. And certainly in our evangelism, we don't want to go there with people. What do we do with evangelism? If you'll just accept Christ as your Savior, what do you get out of it? You can spend eternity in heaven. Well, that's a deal. It's true. It's a true statement. But we don't want to say to somebody, you've got to come in and you've got to sacrifice yourself. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Jesus... I'm not sure he would pass a seminary preaching class, to be honest with you. Because seminary preaching classes have it laid out on how to influence people and move them to the decision you want them to make. Jesus says, look, here it is. It's a tough life. So why would anybody do it? The answer is John 10.10. It is a life that will blow your mind. And by the way, that's not just out there in heaven. That's a today thing. You choose today. Go through the narrow gate on the narrow road. Go back to that backpacking thing that I was talking about. As hard as it was, the payoff for me was certainly up on the side of that cliff face, looking out across that thing. But it was also the journey itself. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Why would anybody choose to go through the difficulty of, and the separation and the alienation that it takes to be a Christian in this day and age? The answer is because it's worth it. 
I'll give you an example or two of that. I'm thinking of a particular individual. Nobody, you know, you wouldn't know them if they walked into this building today from another place. This particular individual had a vibrant walk with Christ. And you, you understand what I mean by that? I mean, it was a relationship. Fellowship was sweet. You sit down with them and they talk to you about what the Lord's teaching them. And we could sit back and we could watch them grow. It was an incredible thing. One of the greatest privileges of being a pastor is to watch people when they get it spiritually and you start to see them grow and mature in Christ. And we were watching that with this individual. And then something happened. Somewhere a choice was made to interpret the events of that life and just turn and walk away from Christ. Now, there were some hard events, no question about it. But in the process of that, what we watched then with this individual was that tight relationship, that nice, growing Spirit of God at work in his life and fruit of the Spirit starting to show in places that you, you know, just in the way he dealt with people. It was an incredible thing for us to watch. But then a decision was made to turn and walk away. In the context of these verses, he decided to choose the broad way. And we watched him die internally. Oh, he was still alive. He still was saved. Once saved, always saved. I believe scripture teaches that. But you had the opportunity, as he did, to take whatever's going on in your life and turn and walk away from God. And that's what he did. And we watched him fall apart in every part of his life. Professionally, relationally, mostly personally. He was not happy. He was eating himself up from the inside out. He was angry with other people. He was short with people. It was a terrible way to live. By the way, that's the word here. The way is easy that leads to destruction. He was just gone. It's like, it's like the real person there just disappeared somehow. But in this case, he came home. And what I mean by that is something happened. There was a discussion. We can take it back to the discussion. We know that God used that in this person's life. And it was like a 180. And the light came back on. And all of a sudden, and since then, we've seen this growth that's occurred. And the things that had been part of his life before that disappeared, all of a sudden they were back again. And he's happy. And he's dispensing joy as he goes through his life. How many Christians do you know who used to have it, but they don't have it anymore? I'm not talking about their salvation. I'm talking about the light of life in their eyes. One of the hardest parts of being a pastor is watching people you love choose the wrong way. I'll tell you about another guy. This guy's name was Jimmy. Now, when I was a youth minister in the church down in South Texas, uh, when I first went there, Jimmy had just made a profession of faith. He had just decided to be a follower of Jesus Christ and committed his life to him. Jimmy was in his late 40s, early 50s at that time. He had been a hard-drinking, partying guy all of his adult life. He had destroyed relationships left and right. 
He was living in the bottle of a Jack Daniels bottle and had been for decades. And somehow, God broke through. And Jimmy found Jesus Christ, and when he got, my dad used to say, when he got saved, he got the full dose. I mean, his whole life was just bright, and he stopped drinking, and all the stuff that was with it just filtered away. Every time you talked to him, all you could hear was how great Jesus Christ was and how alive he was in his life and how come you don't have that in your own life. And he, he led more people to the Lord in a handful of years than most churches do in the Southern Baptist Convention today. He got it. And his life changed because of it. Let me just ask you before we go any further, is it possible that somewhere in this crowd today, somebody has been going through the motions in their Christian life, choosing the broad way rather than the disciple way? What do you do with that if that's you? If you're the one who you know when you hear this, oh, man, I've been going the wrong direction. I don't even know what to do with that. Well, what the answer is, you turn. Jesus Christ is there ready to take you. Here's a last truth I want you to see. Spencer will have it for you on this slide. Success in life is measured by your choices. Will you choose life or will you choose destruction? One of the reasons that we're in the situation that we're in as Christians is because of our choices. I had a situation one time when GPS stuff on my phone first came out. I had to go to a city up in central Texas, and I was going to a particular motel to stay in, and I didn't know where it was. I knew the city, but I didn't know where the motel was. So I typed it into my GPS because I was going to be late getting there. And I don't want, you know. So bottom line is I followed the directions of this GPS, and when it finally said, you have reached your destination, I looked around, and I was in the middle of a field, and there were not even houses around, much less a hotel. That is the picture of many Christian people these days. Listening to the wrong voice. Taking directions from the wrong sources. And Jesus at the end of this sermon says, Choose rightly. Just ask you to bow your heads with me for a few moments. Invitation today is really the one that Jesus gives. Which way are you on? Have you found the narrow gate? And are you on the narrow road? Maybe a good way for me to ask you is to say, the Christianity that you're experiencing today, would you want your children to have the same kind? Is there joy in it? Is there life there? I'm convinced that in America, Christianity, we've bought a lie about the Christian faith. We reduce it to a one-time decision that forever seals our eternity, and then we live the way we want the rest of the time. Jesus will have none of that. It's not anywhere in Scripture. He says, come and die. He says it's the narrow road. There's not a whole lot of people on it because it's hard. Let me tell you, the payoff is incredible. 
both now and in eternity. So my invitation to you is get on the right road, whatever that means. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, the first step is to surrender to Him and accept Him by faith, and He'll save you from your sin and give you a whole new life. But that's where you start. And if that's you today, I just invite you to stand up and make your way down front. We'll have somebody to talk to you. You need Jesus Christ in your life. That's the starting point. He's the gate. But there's a journey that occurs after that. And so right there where you sit, if you've settled the salvation part of it, now let's settle the discipleship part of it. Just you in isolation in a big room with a lot of people. What's your choice today? I invite you to do something about that. We started off by saying, did you come prepared to make a decision for Jesus in your life today? Now's the time. If you need to come up here and talk to me, I'm happy to do that with you. Don't have to. You want me to pray with you? I'm happy to do that. Don't have to. Maybe you just want to slip up here to this front of this thing. It's not even an altar. It's just the room. But it could be a place where you do business with God and changes everything in your life today. Right there where you sit, up here, I'm going to be quiet for just a couple of minutes. This is the invitation.